What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 51 of the Noise Podcast, sponsored by Stereo Brain Records. I am your host, slash your boy, Chris Pugh, and I'm joined once again, but also, as ever, by my very good friend and Mr. Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. Mate, one month on, how are you? <laughs> Couldn't be better, my friend. Glad to be back on here. I say one month on like I haven't spoken to you every day for the last month. But you know what I mean. <laughs> I know, I know. But it's 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 nice still to have this um, this extra sort of conversation that we've had without the podcast. It does it does feel like our conversations have have, have lessened, even though really they haven't. But it's 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 nice it's nice to have this have this back in our lives again, especially with obviously pandemic going on. And I I very rarely see you. Like I I, I, yeah. I didn't re- I didn't realize how pivotal this podcast was to our friendship really until the obviously this month away from it and like what that would be what four hours of us talking just gone uh, yeah. uh, uh, like in in a, in a flash which uh, which was strange but i'm uh, i'm glad that we've returned of course yeah you and me both buddy you and me both we are a fortnightly rock and metal podcast, as I mentioned, sponsored by the wonderful folks over at Stereo Brain Records. We're available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. On our last show a month ago, uh, Slayer's Raining Blood entered our greatest metal of all time. This is number four. We did an album review on Fit for a King's The Path as well. And we had uh, one, probably my favourite uh, Chris Meats that we've ever done uh, with Napalm, Death Barney, Greenway. So that was episode 50. You can go back and check that out. I really, really massively enjoyed that chat with Barney. On our returning episode, as you would have seen from the title, Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast enters at number three and our greatest, greatest metal album of all time list. And this week's album review comes from Chamber with their new record, uh, Cost of Sacrifice. Before we get into the show, uh, I figured it'd be an apt time to mention why we were gone for a month. Uh, that was actually entirely on me. <laughs> um, basically, I started a new job in September. Uh, very, very, very demanding. It was, it was more demanding of my time than, than I expected it to be. And there was, I think I even mentioned actually at the start of episode 50, I think I said to you, Sam, like, we, the, the show was released a day late because I'd got home from work on the Monday and I was like, Sam, yeah. I don't, don't want to do a podcast tonight, mate. We're going to have to do it tomorrow. I've had a really, really busy day. And it was around about later on that week. The busy days kept coming. The busy days kept coming. And we ha- I, I had to listen to I Imagine's Number of the Beast as well as I can't even remember the album that we would have been reviewing that week. It was Alpha Wolf. A, Alpha Wolf. Um, obviously, listening to Alpha Wolf, not a problem, but I remember sitting in my room thinking, holy shit, I do not want to listen to an Iron Maiden album right now. Oh yeah, like, I'm not looking forward to this at all. I forced off to listen to it. Um, I had some thoughts, which we'll share a bit later on. And I was like, you know what? Like, I'm not in the right headspace for this. So I'm not getting, I'm struggling to find myself in the right space to enjoy listening to new music and want to record a podcast. So I figured the best thing for us to do was for just me to just take some time away and then return when uh, work has not necessarily calmed down. It's as busy as ever, but I'm more used to the new job now. I'm more used to how best to manage my time, etc. And it's less of a, less of a strain on me. So I do apologize for keeping you all at home waiting for a month for the three people that listen to the podcast and uh, apologize for keeping you waiting for a month as well, Sam. Although we did speak about this and you did agree that it was best for me to just take some time off until I could really put my heart and soul back into it again. 
I can't wait to write the Iron Maiden Ruins podcast host life <laughs> news article that I'm going to put out on noise a little bit later. It could have. <laughs> uh, 15 seconds of invades I just needed a hiatus says Chris Pugh um, a beleaguered 27 year old podcast host the, the, the opening pictures like me in my room my head in my hands <laughs> literal beast above you like the album covers like you're being haunted yeah, yeah. Um, uh, having said that you know over the summer we were doing a podcast every week and we put out a lot of content this year. So for the month that we're away, we've, we've done more than an extra four episodes this year because we only managed to get 26 in last year, obviously because we're fortnightly. So 26 was actually bang on for the amount that we were supposed to do. Uh, whereas this year, we've already got to episode 51 and we're in the middle of October. So I do apologise for the month off. Um, so I can't foresee that happening again. Well, obviously, I won't predict too far ahead in the future. Uh, we will move on now. I just wanted to explain uh, why we're away for that period of time, but glad to be back. I figured it would make sense then, Sam, for us to quickly, we're not going to go into too much detail here because of time, quickly discuss some albums that have come, count, the albums that have come out in the period where we haven't been recording. Uh, let's start with Alpha Wolf's A Quiet Place To Die, because that was the album that we would have done on the week where I decided I need some time away. Uh, Sam, I mean, holy fucking shit, how could you expect me to not love this? <laughs> it's the heaviest album I've heard this year. It's absolutely <laughs> it's fucking absurd. absurd. It's ridiculous. It's <laughs> ridiculous. Do you know, imagine me saying to you in 2013, uh, sorry, 2015, as the artist murder released Holy War. Imagine me saying to you, this will sound outdated in five years. Because I, I think... <laughs> I, That's I, a bold claim, man. No, That's no, no. Claim. No, I, I think now, for extreme music, I think the artist murder, I've got a real decision to make. After, after listening to this uh, current... Uh, what Polaris are doing as well. Now, Currents and Polaris share very, very, very few similar similarities sonically with Darty's Murder, but you get, but you, you see the point I'm making here. Um, I think Alpha Wolves are quite places are is so good that, uh, obviously, especially because they're Australian as well. I think Darty's Murder. I, I think Darty's Murder have a decision to make. Um, I think I think that's I think that's interesting. I think. Uh, <sighs> I think though there are there are Thyatis murder fans that do like them as they are, and there's a there's a there's a there's a respect level that that comes yeah. with their sort of the deathcore and things like that. I I don't necessarily think that Thyata facing extinction if they don't change. No, no, no. And you know they're not facing extinction. I will still go to the next Thyatis murder tour. If the next time they release an album, if it sounds the same as the last album, Human. Target. Um, if, if it yeah. sounds as if it sounds the same as Human Target, I'll still go. It'll still it'll still be. A, I'm, I've got no doubt it'll still be a very good Darius Murder record. However, um, both Human Target and Dear Desolation. Do we feel like uh, we are walking on already trodden ground? We are. Murder? We are. We are, but if, if we were five albums down the road with Alpha Wolf, we'd probably say the same thing. Uh, there's every chance that we could, but what I mean is, because Alpha Wolf are like the new blood, uh, fresh on the town, and Die Artist Murder, <laughs> like, it seemed like we are... Going out to shag other female <laughs> death metal albums. Die Artist Murder possibly seemed like we're, we're retreading steps. I feel like 
there's possibly a decision needs to be made. Now, that's not me saying that I think Darkly's murder should try and sound like Alpha doing a quiet place to die because I don't think that would be a good move for Darkly's murder at all. However, I do think there might need to be some kind of modernization of what the artist murder do if they are looking to continue moving forward, if they're happy. Uh, in in the space that they're in, then obviously there's no need to do that. But if they're looking to keep progressing as a band, I do feel like there would need to be some steps made. Because, you know, look at, you know, uh, just before that, a Diamond Construct as well, DCX2. Yeah, yeah. Again, I Australia. I, I agree. I, I agree. I would, be, I would be interested to hear whatever version of Thigh Art um, emanates from the next album. I can't personally see actual change, but I'd be interested if they began to experiment with sort of electronics and different sounds in the same way that lots of bands are doing now. Um, like Diamond Constructs and even a little bit of Code Orange that sort of started oh, to wow. manipulate their own, that, that manipulate their sound with electronics and different mixing strategies and things. And that appears to be the way that alternative music appears to be going um, alongside sort of hardcore metal bands like the one that we're reviewing um, later in the podcast and things like that. It appears to be the sound of, of modernity at the minute. Um, the thing is about Thigh Art is that they, they are, it sounds really strange because they're a deathcore band, but they're the most heavy metal sounding deathcore band. Yeah. Out of all of, out of, all of them. Like they, they, they have guitar solos and sort of like power chord structures and things like that. It, it, they do sound sometimes like guttural versions of like, of like classic heavy metal bands at times, sort of like a black metal quality. Um, I think if Thigh Art, I agree with you. I think if Thigh Art want to go down the road of progression and, and want to be like a architect sized band, not with the same appeal, but an architect sized band, then change obviously is going to have to come because Deathcore is never going to fill a 10,000 seat venue. But um, I think Thigh Art personally, given that they have CJ for a vocalist and his style is unique but also inherently limiting to the, the the variety that you can do within the band uh they're probably gonna they're probably gonna carve out a black dahlia murder type existence for the next 15 years where they're they're a legendary band within their field possibly but yeah but they don't necessarily transcend it and then in 20 30 years they're taken on like a napalm death type overarching legendary figure within metal possibly you know yeah I mean? and that's what i mean I think, but I the... that's the road that they're on that's what I mean when I was like, they've got a choice to make. Yeah, of course. Of course um, they have. But this isn't about Diarty's Murder. This, that's a, this is about Alpha Wolf, and the album is fucking excellent. Yeah, from start, from start to finish, um, it is as good as a hardcore... I don't know what you... I don't know how you describe this, because it feels like a blend of things. It's a, it's a lot of things. I, I would say hardcore more than anything else, but I, I, I then wouldn't be able... I wouldn't um, kind of criticise anyone that referred to it as metalcore, for example. Some people are referring to it as newcore, because, uh, you know, a, a, a new core spell N-U. Oh, no. Uh, that's, yeah. my name. that's my follow-up question. Yeah, but, but I, I think what they mean is, like, that, that kind of electronics, like, like that diamond construct. Yeah, I can see it. I, I, I understand uh, where they're coming from, but I, I personally am going to stray away from the term new core for as long as I possibly physically can. Uh, I, I would... <laughs> I would, I would stick with hardcore more than anything else. It's a fucking phenomenal, 
phenomenal album, whichever genre you decide to put it in. Um, unbelievably intense. One of the most intense albums I've heard full stop. Mm-hmm. Produced great. Um, it's so... It's like wrapped up in this absolute like brutal atmosphere. Really harsh lyrics, cleverly written. Fucking quite places like Alpha Wolf is uh, is very very much something. I think I'm going to be seeing that album album of the year list as well as Sam Svalbard. When I die, will I get better? Um, were you weren't familiar with Svalbard before I told you about them, were you? No, um, and I very much am now. This blew me away. Um, fucking brilliant, is... yeah. Yeah, this is um this is an album of the year contender for me, not just on the list. I think it's I think it, I'm I'm mentally having to reconfigure the top three to five because of this album. Um, it is it is sensational, and um, there's a there's an in, you talk about the intensity of Alpha Wolf. There's an intensity to this that's entirely oh, yeah. different. Yeah. Um. There's there's a layering and a uh, I. Helpless sort of melancholic um, texture to this to this album that are, that is that is beautiful and um, tangible, but it's also hard to describe. Um, it's just incredibly written, and the guitar tone on this album on some of the on the high guitar notes with this echoey, almost like if Edge from U2 was a metal band. Um, sort of like layering and and sort of um, skating in between the songs here. I think it's just extraordinary. Um, I think that the opening four to five tracks of this just are absolutely astonishing. Um, I think it's open wound and talk to someone are just almost just incredibly compelling, gripping songs on a absolutely fantastic album and. Um, this is how you capture emotional intensity without it feeling um, tedious or overplayed. Um, there's a subtlety to the emotion yeah. here, and it seems really powerful. And it seems almost um, there's a grandiosity, a grandio, a grandeur. That's what I'm trying to say. Sorry, a grandeur to the to the music. Almost like everything's been written for a movie or a film score. It has this kind of epic, culminative quality that just feels really special. This is uh, a terrific album by a band that I am. I have, I regret immediately that I haven't got into earlier. It's metal with a tear in its eye, isn't it? I think. It is. It is. Like, it's got a really serious subject matter, but yeah. it's, it is absolutely, it is undeniably instrumentally fucking harsh as well. Um, like tracks like Clickbait, where, you know, it's fucking brutal, but obviously it's talking about uh, the bullshit agendas uh, that you'd find in media organisations. I've known the Svalbard for, for a, a short while. They were spoken about um, by a few of the people that work for Noise, and I've also heard them mentioned on Riot Act podcasts as well. So when I knew the album was coming out, I thought it would be something that should be on our radar. And, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely in love with it, man. I, I can't listen to it enough. And like it's one of those albums I just keep. I listen to it as well. Yeah, you pick up on something every time you listen to it, and I'm. I think that's one of those albums that I'm gonna, I'm gonna really, I'm gonna sink my teeth into again as we as we get towards the end of the year, uh, just to see if if and if I'm still picking up on new things when I sink my teeth back in, then it's good. I think it might be really high on my list. Fucking great record. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. 
More curious than anything else, Sam, to get your thoughts on Corey Tyler's uh, debut style, our record CMFT. Um, I'm really looking forward to the new Dukes of Hazard film that he re- this, wrote this album for. <laughs> right, okay. Um, it's serviceable, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, there is one highlight on this album that re- that's really, really good for me, and it's the song Home. Where yeah, that shows, is shows fucking brilliant. That is brilliant. So, absolutely beautiful song where it really shows off his voice, his range, his depth of songwriting. And I will say this for the album. It sounds like he's having a really fun time. Yeah. It sounds like he's really enjoying himself. And I love Corey Taylor. So um, I hope that it's, I hope that he is and I hope that he tours it and he gets a chance to have, have all this sort of stuff. But it's, your, it's bog standard American rock. Um, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit cliched and a bit like sort of country and Western turned up and there's a lot of cliched songwriting style on this. There's nothing sort of reinventing the wheel. It's a bit like, um, a bit ZZ Top-esque, but with sort of Corey Taylor singing over it. It's a little bit like, um, it's a little bit like uh, Nickelback with sort of like a Southern American twist. Um, it's, like you said, it's perfectly serviceable. And there are some decent moments on this. I think turning, I think the song "Turning Black Eyes Blue" I think is the highlight outside of home. I think that's a decent track. Um, but overall, I rolled my eyes listening to it. But I, I mean, I've got a lot of love for Corey Taylor, so I sort of let him get away with it really because his voice is terrific, and it carries the carries some of the weaker material enough for me not to despise it or anything like that. I don't dislike it. It's perfectly good, perfectly serviceable. Serviceable. It sounds like he's enjoying himself. Home is a banger. And yeah, I, that, that's all I've got for it, really. It, it just, it sounds like a lockdown album. You know, it's, yeah. you know, like it sounds like he's just put these songs together while he's in his bedroom looking for things to do. He's got a few session musicians. It's just sort of um, just chucked out there a little bit. Um, and like I said, it's perfectly okay. And I think he'll have a great time touring it. Um, but I'm, um, I would go too far and say that it was a good album. I just think it's all right. It's all right. One of the things that surprised me in its aftermath is the amount of people that were like, this isn't the core of Taylor I know. To which, <laughs> to which I thought, have you paid attention to Corey Taylor fucking at all over the last 15 years? Corey Taylor's gone on record loud. Someone said he loves blues and jazz and he loves hard, hard American rock. He loves everything, everything about music. And what I think... And I reviewed uh, CMFT uh, for Distorted Sound, and I gave it like a seven because I, 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 there's another there's a song in there called Kansas which I really like, and I, I do think Home is the highlight. And I know we've heard Corey strip back on like snuff before, but I've, we've never heard him as emotionally open as he is on Home, um, which I found very interesting. Don't say a song that's similar called XXYZX or something like that, and it's the last song on the Come Whatever My album, and this that's the only thing that's even close to this. A bother as well. Oh, God, yeah. Great, um, great shout. But, 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 uh, in terms of, I, I have never heard him as emotionally open as he's on home. And I really, and I really enjoyed that. But I think the best thing about the album is that it doesn't try to be Slipknot or Stone Sour. It's got nothing to do with either of those bands. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think Absolutely. I said, I, I think I said this to you. It's not a Slipknot album minus the blast beats, nor is it a Stone Sour album that's tune lower. Like, it, it, it's very, very much an island, which I think 
helped me listening to it because I, I don't want to hear knockoff Slipknot and knockoff Stone Sour songs. I want to hear the real. If Corey Taylor's going to write something that sounds a bit like Slipknot, I just want to do a Slipknot album. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Well, I, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I thought it was fun and like and like I say, serviceable. The other thing that I noted when I was reviewing it that I, I enjoyed was I can't remember the guitarist's name on it, um, but they both do a great job, without, job without without trying to be Randy Rhodes in 2020. Which because of you know the I'm not saying that Corey Taylor is the size of Ozzy Osbourne was in 1980. However, he's absolutely the biggest superstar in metal, isn't it? Like, I, you know, there isn't, especially of this generation, but there just isn't another one near him. So, you know... Yeah, he's you, probably right. You know, you could Ollie see... Ollie Sykes, perhaps, but Ollie not really Sykes, global, eh? Ollie Sykes, perhaps, maybe in the UK, yes, but, like, not with the same global appeal. And I no. think that, you know, if you're a guitarist who's working on Corey Taylor's fucking solo record, and you're thinking, holy shit, man, this has put me on the map, give me every solo, that's not what they do. They stick away from that and, and they, they drop sick fucking solos and great guitar lines in where the song requires them. That's another thing that I enjoyed about it. It's fine. Good record. Um, I, I would not clam out for a Corey Taylor solo tour from the back of it. I think that probably is what will happen. But I think that probably does Corey Taylor a favour in terms of resetting uh, his creative mind for whenever Slipknot start writing again, which I think is actually sometime quite soon. Yeah, I think that's fair. It, it might open uh, open the door to some intimate Corey Taylor gigs, though, which would be interesting. Which I'd definitely be, I'd definitely fancy if he was doing like um five hundred five hundred vet capped venues where he's like playing acoustic stuff, playing with a band, telling stories, doing that sort of shit. I'd be well yeah. into that. Yes, a, a Corey Taylor solo night would absolutely be of interest to me. Um, just to round us off, Sam, uh, Touche Amore's Lament. Um. Touche more, I fuck. Um, they did the, the album, their predecessing album, um, Stage Four, came out in 2016. I've spoke to you at length about this now. I, I've never finished that album in one sitting. It is one of the most emotionally difficult albums to sit through you will ever, ever listen to. Uh, it's based around the vocalists. Uh, it was written during the vocalist Mom's um, Stage Four of her cancer. Uh, that unfortunately uh, she didn't survive. And it's, you know, the subject matter, the, the way the songs are written, the, the fucking lyrics, it is really emotionally difficult to sit through. But it's absolutely incredible. It's one of the best albums of the last decade. It really is a special, special piece of music. So following that up, Lament, I'm going into this record thinking, what the fuck are they going to... Like, they have, they have just written the album of their careers. There is no way they'll ever write a better album than that. It is one of the best albums of the last decade by a mile. Um, and with and with Lament, I'm pleased to report that uh, it's not a continuation of Stage 4 necessarily, uh, neither in quality nor real subject matter. However, I still very, very much love this. Um they're, they're nothing like anything you would have heard before, are they? Two show more, right, Sam? I don't know about that, Chris. I'm going to keep this. I'm going to keep this brief. I didn't like this. Right. Okay. Um, I think personally, I am over the quiet vocalist screaming from the bathroom while clean guitar is played in the background. I think that as a motif is overdone. No. I, I, I think that's a very minimalistic way to describe Two Show More, right? But I'll allow it. 
<laughs> well, I think I think this album is not great. I, I, I didn't. I, I listened to it. I listened to it through twice, and uh, I was not compelled. Um, I can I can see I can see the appeal, but it doesn't work for me. Um, I think that it. I think that the the musicianship is poor at times. I think the songwriting style for me felt tedious and overblown at times. And I haven't listened to stage four. I, I, I wanted to listen to this first and then sort of go backwards. And uh, because I didn't like this, I didn't want to listen to that and then not like that and then hurt your feelings. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, we're because we're friends and I know you really love it. So I, I, I thought well, I'll just try this, but. Um, I, I I thought I thought the riffs were minimalistic. I thought that I thought the musicianship was poor, and I don't like I don't like the songwriting structure that was just repeated throughout the album, which is um, him being aggressively sad in the corner. I don't think he's a good vocalist. I, 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 Fucking I hell, dude! I just I, I just don't I don't, I don't oh, like oh, oh. the I, I don't like the the shouting out instead of actually singing melodies over poorly constructed riffs. I don't think this is very good at all. You like fucking Iron Maiden? Yeah, with a better singer, better songwriting, and better riffs. Yeah, yeah. You can't hum a single song on this. I don't think. <laughs> like, that, no, I, that, that's not, to be fair, dude. That is not what Two Shame More I go for. No, Touche, no. Two Shame More I aren't trying to write songs you could put on in a nightclub. No, no, I, I understand. I understand that, and that, that's that is that is an unnecessarily uh, unnecessary jab. I'll take that. Um, I just it didn't work for me. Fair, fair, hey, dude. Uh, you listened. That's that's. I suppose all we can ask. Um, I also want to make a quick mention. Um, eighty percent of pop punk albums ever released are really boring, bland, and mediocre. But that twenty percent is fucking excellent. And Knuckle Puck have just released an album called Twenty Twenty, and it's fucking brilliant. Oh my god, I have done nothing but listen to it this weekend. But I like bright, it. Man. Uh, um, twenty percent, right? Ah. Uh, uh, I don't know. Do you want to try it anyway? Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you know what? Why not? Why not? <laughs> All right, I'll tell you what, we'll do it on the next podcast. I won't tell you until it's, then. It's in the 20%, but it's in the bottom rung of the 20%. Like, it's not a name of the state. <laughs> okay, okay. Could you get relegated? <laughs> no, no, rung. no. It, it, it's it, it's <laughs> definitely in there. It's safe. It's, it's, yeah, okay. It's, it's, um, it's Southampton. Yeah, it's Southampton. It's got Danny Ings up front. <laughs> Danny Ings is wait. keeping I'm, him in it, like. I can't wait to what's now been described as the musical equivalent to Danny Ings. That's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> no, I feel like I, that's me criticising it. This album is is fucking great. I, I really, really love it. Well, Danny it. Ings is great. I don't he is. I can't believe he's not starting. I hope he's, I hope he's listening. Danny Ings, if you're listening, you're great. We're good yeah. fans over yeah. here at the Noise Podcast. Danny, the England team should have picked on form and you and Calvert-Lewin should be at leading the line. Um, <laughs> we, we're getting into strange areas, so we will actually move on to the main crux of the show, Sam. Uh, we're going to talk about Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast coming at number three on our greatest metal album of all time. This we are right fucking there, uh, top three now. So we are, as we mentioned a month ago, we're at Mount Rushmore now. We are. And we have reached Iron Maiden's unfortunate head on, wow. uh, on, on Metal Mount Rushmore. Now, no, I now, wish I was nastier to Touche more, ain't it? Now, now uh, the thing is, Sam, right, with this, I am going to be fairly passive in this album description. 
more so right. passive than I've been in any um, greatest man of all time discussion that we've done, I think, because this is just so obviously, like, not for me. Like, th this is the same as me showing you, I don't know, a fucking We The Kings album from, like, 2010. You know, it's just... A com it's never, ever going to be for you, that isn't. Nor nor this for me there are there are some um, things that i would like to to discuss on it but for the most part i mean i just can't i just can't see for one moment when you when you saw that we were getting to third you thinking oh chris will love this i think the best song i made has ever done is fear of the dark well, that i've heard anyway i'm not even going to pretend for a moment that i've kind of traipsed through their fucking discography just the ones that i've happened to hurt to hear fear of the dark is is for me uh, by far the best song. Um, one thing that I did want to mention about this: um, Bruce Dickinson's the fourth vocalist. Yeah, yeah. The fuck yeah. was going on? They were only a band that only started in nineteen seventy nine, didn't they? Yeah. So they had like they had like two different vocalists during their pub era. Then found Paul Dianio and then replaced him with Dickinson. It's just some early lineup changes. That Paul Dianio, they've only had two vocalists in recorded history. Right. Okay. Oh, I see. Okay. Do you know what I mean? So, doesn't really matter. Uh, released uh, 22nd of March, uh, top in the UK album chart by, by April 10th. Uh, obviously, uh, 22nd of March, 1982. Um, it's worth pointing out. Uh, it was also, if I remember, if I've done my research correctly, Sam, uh, Clive Burrs, who was the drummer, his last album with the band. That's right, yeah. Nick and McBride was hired for the next album. Reached top 40 in the US Billboard 200 as well. Uh, I mean, we are talking about an album here that is very much seminal uh, for heavy metal, aren't we? Yeah, we absolutely are. Um, and it's important to remember that this was also Bruce Dickinson's first album uh, yeah. as vocalist. So this was a band that had changed their vocalist and it also kicked off um, the success that Iron Maiden have been pretty much known for from this album through now. Like, let's be honest, 38 years later, I imagine are massive. And yeah, this album yeah, really, huge. really, really, really started that. And um, this this was a brave, brave move to get rid of Paul Dianio. And then they changed their songwriting style um, away from the punkish elements that you heard on their first two albums to the more grandiose, um, longer, um, more guitar-centred, if possible, for Iron Maiden. Uh, lengthier songs that became became the backdrop of their success. This is the first album, really, where the quote-unquote maiden blueprint, um, my dad calls them the heavy metal Ramones, um, which I think sounds, sounds about right. And the way that they found a style that instantly resonated, like you said, 22nd of March by April 10th, it's top. It's extraordinary. Yeah, Imme yeah. Immediately, immediately hit a note. Obviously, Run to the Hills is a massive single that really pushed that over the edge. And they have been... Not living off that, but they have replicated that for the next sort of four or five albums that then propelled them into being one of the biggest metal bands we've ever, ever had. Ever, ever had. I've seen it written that Steve Harris said that uh, Diania wouldn't have been capable of performing the vocal direction that he, being Steve yeah. Harris, wanted to take Maiden in. Now, I haven't heard Maiden's two records, but you just decided them, just described them as somewhat punkish affairs. Yeah. So, do you think that was a fair decision to make. Oh, yeah. oh I absolutely agree. Daniel was a good vocalist, but um yeah, he, he was a he, he had like a punkish sort of rasp. Um so he really suited the first two Iron Maiden albums are a very upbeat sort of like 
fa- quite fast paced. Um, not as many long extended sort of slow moments and things like that. He's very, very upbeat, very, it's half punk, half heavy metal. And that suited Dianio's voice, but Dianio absolutely could not do the long extended vocal lines that Bruce Dickinson can do. Bruce Dickinson's got like an operatic type voice, hasn't he? Where he can sort of like really bellow. Uh, there's no way Dianio would have been able to sing Run to the Hills let alone Hallow Be Thy Name or something like that. He just wouldn't have been able to do it. And because of Dickinson, the arrival of Dickinson, that allowed Steve Harris to change the style of the songs that he put together to suit Dickinson's voice, which I imagine included things like the melodies and things like that. So it wasn't just that they had these songs written and Dianio came in, sung them, and then they realised they couldn't sing them. It's they got rid of Dianio, hired Dickinson, and then realized they needed to change the songs to suit Dickinson, which I actually think is a much more impressive process. Rather than attempting to shoehorn Dickinson into their old style, they recognized that the vocalist, well, Steve Harris recognized that the vocalist needed something else to be built their sound around. And that's when they really settled on this huge chorus style and um, really epic sort of sized riffs and songs to really bring out the best of Dickens' voice. And obviously, it worked like a charm. I'm going to put something to you here, Sam. Uh, of all the albums that we've gone through uh, in this top 20 that we've been deciphering in piece by piece segments, I don't think any album yet has been as critically lauded uh, as Number of the Beast. Do you think that can be accredited to the fact that by this point, metal was now fully established. Um, and this was like the first example of a band, quote unquote, perfecting a new blueprint uh, with a hint of added commerciality in it too. I think so. I think, I think that's a really good idea, Chris. I think, I think, I think that's, a, that's, a nice, that's a nice way of putting it, actually. If you, th- if you think, think about the years, that, let's think about the albums that preceded Number of the Beast, in, just from a heavy metal perspective and a rock perspective. So obviously we've talked about Addis Ad Nauseam. But we've had, before Number of the Beast, you've got the entire Sabbath and Led Zeppelin decade. Yeah. yeah. Then, you've yeah. Got, then you've got ACDC's Back in Black, yeah. Rush's, um, Rush's first two albums, and Moving Pictures in 81. You've got Motorhead. Um, you've got bands like Saxon and UFO and Van Halen were on their Brit- third album by 1981. British Steel. Um, yeah, British Steel, Judas Priest. So yeah, metal was very well established by 1982 and was having a bit of a glory period. Um, in terms of its popularity, heavy metal was being played on top of the pops. It was top 50 billboards regularly. Like you said, number of the beast, number one with a week and a half. Metal was shifting records. It yeah, really, man. really was. And, and it was being considered, even though it was, you know, still mocked by the sort of, you know, pop DJs and things and stuff like that. But it was undeniable that rock music and heavy metal music was outside of like ABBA style pop music and things like that. Probably the second most popular music in the world at that particular time. Um, you know, in the Western world, obviously. Um, I don't want to be sort of... Um, sort of ignorance of those sort of other areas but yeah, but yeah I, I i think that's i think that's i think that's very very fair to say and i think iron maiden as well like you say perfected the blueprint but didn't exactly run away from the original one that existed and they they essentially took the two elements of the last two most successful genres in heavy music which is punk rock and classic heavy metal and they combined them together and so as a result they brought in everybody um 
which is also one of the reasons I think why Iron Maiden are really, really, really popular, but also not particularly influential in the modern era. So it's actually really difficult to replicate Maiden, you know, like what they did and how they sound. Um, it's, 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 I think bands have, have taken their ideas in some other directions. So if you listen to sort of prog metal, you can say, oh, that, that's sort of those ideas from Maiden or things like that. But now band is like Maiden-esque really. Um, but, but yeah, uh, as a result of the Metal Glory era at the time, Maiden really came in at what was a fertile ground for heavy rock music and beyond, definitely. Devil's Advocate, if you come out in 1977, yeah. would it, do you reckon it would have been as immediately commercially successful? Obviously, it might have gone on to re- it might have gone on to replicate the same uh, amount of album sales, etc. But like, obviously, within a within a week, it was top of the UK album chart and in top forty of the US Billboard. Um, so yeah, Devil's Advocate, just just to bounce something off you, if it came out in 77, 78. Probably not, because um, at that point in 77 and 78, um, people were being turned off heavy metal because of punk. Um, For that 18-month period, people were buying Sex Pistols albums and the Jam records and Ramones and stuff like that. And you've got to remember as well, Maiden would have had to make it in England before they were allowed to make it in America. And I I don't think that they would have broken through the, the punk barrier until punk itself died in mid 78 um if you bring it out in 79 though i think it's actually if this album comes out in 1979 it's like hailed as one of the most influential albums of its time because it's preceded things like acdc's black uh, back in black and things like that and you're like oh my god they were doing this in the 70s but like in the same way that i talked about van halen's first album which came out in 1978 and it's just extraordinary that it sounds like that 10 years before appetite for destruction do you know what i mean um Whereas this, you can see what they've done. It's not like they came out of like nowhere. It's like when you hear it, it's like, oh, you put two of this and two of that, and then you came out with four. Like you can see the function, you can see the formula that they've put together. Whereas if this came out earlier, it probably wouldn't have been popular in 1977, but in 1979, they might have been hailed as like geniuses. But at this point, in 92, you can just see exactly what they've done because of the elements that have preceded it. I think it's fair to say that with the list that you've curated here, you have gone for 95% objectivity and 5% subjectivity, right? I've tried to be as, yeah, I've tried to minimalise my own opinion as much as possible, but it's, it's, it is hard to completely do that, of course. Cu- curious, is this top three on your subjective list? No, it's not. Thanks, lords. Um, <laughs> so, and that's, that leads me, right... Objectively, of course, this album is one of the all-time greats, and, and I'm fully aware that I know you've made the point that actually Maiden are—it's difficult to say how influential Maiden are—but I am fully aware that without this, the bands that I love in the modern era, such as Machine Head or Killswitch Engage, Devil Driver, maybe even Lamb of God, possibly you know maybe even Metallica, um, they, they might. Yeah, this they, is... Yeah. They the might not. Well, yeah, it's a year before Kill Them All, isn't it? So, the, maybe they don't exist if this album doesn't come out. Yeah, we definitely don't have Thrash without without New Wave of British Heavy Metal. Oh, absolutely not. This, this is this is the adolescence that grew into Thrash Metal. Absolutely not. I, I I agree with that entirely. But obviously, with that, similar to Judas Priest, British Steel, which I actually think this album is much better than. 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's I'm glad all... you said that too. Oh my God, this is so much better than British Steel. Yes. But, it, but saying that, this is also <laughs> almost everything that I fear I'm going to hear when I listen to an 80s metal album. Uh, and I think... Fear is a strong word, surely. Well, I think that's primarily because, and we're not going to go over the same point again, if you listen to this podcast for a long time, I got into metal late, very much in the modern era, and I do struggle to go backwards sometimes. Uh, I use this analogy quite a lot, but, you know, similar to, I understand that Bruno Sammartino is one of the most important professional wrestlers of all time, but I watch his matches in the 70s, and I kind of find them boring, because it's 70s wrestling, and I grew up on mid, mid-2000s slash late-90s wrestling, which is obviously much more aggressive and physical, etc. So, uh, you know, Bruno San Martino, if it wasn't for him, WWF doesn't become the, the massive mainstream, ginormous enigma that it is. And then I never find professional wrestling. But I don't, that doesn't mean I, have, I don't like watching his matches because it's just a different time. And that's the same for this maiden record for me. Like it's, I mean, you know, there's some really, really slick, elegant, beautiful guitar work. But if we just start to invade a Sam, fuck me. I think that chorus is absolutely terrible. It's it's not a great chorus, but you at least agree the rest of the song's not bad at all. Yeah, no, the the solo, the solo is good, but I, mate, I find I really the like chorus... the intro with a little bass line in between the chord changes. I think that's really nice. I think that it, it's so unbelievably jarring. That, that chorus yeah. is. Uh, and I don't like Bruce Dickinson as a vocalist. See, that's that's a big problem because I really do. And I've, as a result, I, I enjoy this album obviously much more than you do. <laughs> yeah. and, that, and that's the thing. When it's also worth mentioning, it was incredibly popular, but not a lot with original Iron Maiden fans. There's a famous, okay. there's a famous review. Um, you know, like, you know, magazines get like letters from readers and stuff. Yeah. Um, when Iron Maiden's third album came out, um, a, a Sounds magazine ran a letter from readers, and um, one one bloke wrote in saying, "Hearing Bruce Dickinson sing for Iron Maiden is like hearing my favourite songs being played through an air raid siren." Right. Okay. Um, right. Okay. Because he was he was he was cons- he wasn't a popular move at the time, um, because he was this sort of like let like left field stuff. And if you ever. Not that you ever would, but if you heard the Maiden stuff that happened before then, then you can see how much of a leap that it is. And it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a popular, popular move at the time. But then as the song styles changed, you couldn't have actually became, it became like a hypnotic thing where you couldn't actually, actually imagine anybody else singing them in the same sort of way. Now, before, before, before I hand it back to you, I just want to say, I really like Bruce Dickinson's voice. I think it's the archetypal classic heavy metal voice in the sense that he obviously can't, he doesn't scream or anything like that, but I think he's got real personality and charisma in his vocals. And I think his ability to do the operatic low stuff really suits Iron Maiden's songwriting. It gives it this um, Broadway theatrical sort of element that I personally really enjoy. And he has a variety that it's, and it's well, immediately recognizable. And I think yeah, that's is, one yeah. of the things, it's one of the things as well that separated Maiden from like Saxon, you know, like just one of those like run of the mill um, heavy metal bands that just sort of sell 10,000 copies of their album and play in the Civic or 
playing for the 2000 cap venues or playing the Robin or something like that. I think Dickinson is the reason that this band has transcended. So I do want to give him caps personally, but I accept that if you, who's a person who sort of had like a, a retroactive metal, um, heavy metal experience where you listen to the modern stuff first and then found the old stuff, I can accept that because your first experiences have tailored you towards the stuff that you listen to now. Whereas I grew up listening to Maiden and then discovered the old, the newer stuff almost organically. So I have an appreciation of both, I think. So I can accept that the, the Dickinson style is a bit jarring for you taste-wise. I just wanted to shout out that I think it's, I, th- I really like it and I think it was massively important for the band and the genre. I mean, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, like, I know that I am absolutely in the minority saying that Bruce Dickinson's voice isn't for me, but just let, we won't talk about the song yet because it finishes the album. But, you know, just to give some extra context to my perspective, the first time I heard Hello Be Thy Name was Machine Head's version. I heard, yeah, yeah. I heard Machine Head's version before I heard it on Maiden. So it, it's kind of weird. It's really weird listening to Hello Be Thy Name by Iron Maiden because I have fucking love Machine Head's cover I think Rob Flynn's amazing on it like I think it's amazing and I prefer Maiden's I think Dickens is a better vocalist I prefer the, the Maiden's slower more methodical version I, I, I prefer the sound of the mix and I think the guitars are cleaner it's uh, that's that's just it isn't it like yeah, um, it's like you know when you, it's like I talk to my dad about football all the time and he talks about players from the 70s in the way that I would tell my future children about watching Lionel Messi. Yeah. And then I'll watch the highlights with him and it's like seven drunken blokes bashing into each other on a mud-ridden... <laughs> yeah! ...into like 50 blokes, of which three teeth are present in the entire fucking stadium. And he's yeah. looking at me with this giddy grin, like, isn't this great? And I'm like, Dad, this is shite. Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. And he's like, look at Andy Gray here. It's absolutely fantastic. Look at and, he's, and it's like one slightly taller mulleted man elbowing his way to a corner or surrounded by other lumbering mulleted men without shin pads on and the football standards really poor and yeah and, and that's the thing but for him that's when football was great for him yeah he was going to matches and growing up and watching it and stuff and i imagine it'll make me sad that i'll be showing kids things like kids in the future like you know like messi and like Ronaldo and Michael Jordan and Mike Tyson. And then they'll be like, well, it's not as good as X person from my yeah. generation who can, who can like do this, this and this, and they're all faster and all this sort of stuff. And it's just affected that the generation that you're exposed to. And obviously it goes without saying, you're a really big machine head fan. Yeah. So, yeah. so hearing, hearing the band through the kaleidoscope of a band that you really, really like gave it life and a texture that you enjoy. Whereas I really like Iron Maiden. I was actually thinking about the... So I knew you'd talk about the Hallaby Their Name cover. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking to myself, well, which version do I prefer? I think I prefer the Maiden version. And then I was actually thinking, which band do I prefer? Maiden or Machine Head? And it, I think I did eventually settle on Machine Head, but it was, it was a toss-up. And I think that gives you a little bit of context to the, to the angles that we're coming at this from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest, so far, this is one of the most fascinating discussions we've done, for me, on, on one of the albums, because we're at two completely different ends. And nine times out, nine times out of ten so far on this, on this list, especially when we got into the top 20, apart from Judas Priest's, it's been albums that even if 
I were massive fans of the band per se or massive familiar, I've been like, oh my God, this album now, I totally get it because I love this, this, this and this. Whereas for this album, I, I am actually quite far away from you here. Uh, what I will yeah. say, what I will say is Children of the Damned is much better and, and Br- Br- uh, Bruce kind of harrows over it. Um, kind of like uh, Ozzy Osbourne on Mr. Crowley um, from Blizzard yeah. of Oz. Yeah, I, I, I would I would agree. Also, I want to throw this to you with Children of the Damned. Sounds <clears> a bit like Fight to Black in the song structure. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, it, not, I'm not saying that it's anywhere on the same level. Not at all. But it's the picked riff at the start, isn't it? Clean guitar, lead guitar, um, heavy metal chorus, fast-paced finish. That's that's the Metallica blueprint of ballads. I'm not saying that they, they've lifted it, um, but... Lars Ulrich said that they were big fans of Maiden when they were, they were coming together. And you can really hear um, that juxtaposition between light and dark that Metallica yeah. really perfected on Ride the Lightning and a Master of Puppets. Can I say as well that I'm not a massive fan of the production on this album? And I, I've did, you listen listen to the, did you listen to the 2015 remaster or the original? The remaster. Oh, okay. Because I, th- I, I think I, the remaster is much better. What don't, what don't you like about the production? Well, I feel, apart from the title track and Run to the Hills, I feel like, I don't know whether this is like, I'm on an island with this opinion. Don't you feel like the guitars haven't really got much of a fucking punch or real weight to them? They're, they're, softly, they're softly produced, but I think that was a deliberate move. That's the, I think that's the Iron Maiden style, Chris. I don't, I don't think that they're, um, I don't think they're ever intended to be like, staccato heavy sharp guitars in the same way that metallica did later on i really do think that they're they're deliberately produced in a way um where they're soft and melodic if they were gonna that's just by the way they're they're, they're written i think if they were gonna do that then shouldn't they have gone for the angus and malcolm idea of let's just if we're if we're gonna go for a cleaner sound let's make it sound like crystal whereas whereas this it's somewhere in between that for me it's a bit lightweight but with it being lightweight it's not massively it's not really pitch perfect either now again i I am and i will be the first person to say in terms of the ins and outs of instrumentation i'm not your guy you know, I'll listen to an album, I'll tell you what I think of it, but picking apart like certain riff patterns or how things are done or production styles, that's far, far from my expertise. However, I feel like, I don't know, like the lead riff from uh, 22 Acacia Avenue, I think that would, for me, I think that would benefit wholeheartedly from either tune it down so it, so it sounds like it's got a punch to it. Or, if we're not going to go out of that direction, fucking make it sound like crystal. So it's really piercing and bright. I don't know, man. Again, just, to, just... But But what I will say, the opening, ri- the opening riff to the title track, it, I mean, that is produced exceptionally. And there could never... There should never be... If there was another remaster going forward or however this album could ever be re-recorded, that should never be changed or never be touched. It's spot on. And the same for, of course, Run to the Hills as well, uh, which seems to mention Run to the Hills. I'm not sure what Clive Burr went on to do after this album, but I can't imagine it was anything better than the, than the fills that he puts in the chorus. 
because yeah, yeah, and, and the 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 drumming track is superb, isn't it? Instantly yeah. iconic. Yeah, um, it, it's just just a just a marvelous, marvelous song. Um, and and yeah, I, 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 I just just one more thing on on the production thing, which I think is I think you've made some superb points there. I think um, to Devil's Advocate from your points, I just don't think Maiden had the money to do oh, the I ACDC mean, yeah. the, the yeah. ACDC production job. A third third album, you know what I mean? I, I, they're they're not they're not at that point. Although I, I can accept that's a fair comment. Um, plus, because um, they were doing the they do a lot of double guitar harmonies, and they don't do the thing that Metallica do, where they have the double guitar harmonies, but they have like a, a third guitar running underneath, adding right. like sort of a, a background layer, which means that when they're they're playing the solos at the same time and doing the layers, there's just the bass, because um, obviously Steve Harris is massively prevalent in this. Um, so I think that contributes to the lack of weight. I guess is the phrase I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I think I think your I think your echoes of the production are, are, are well founded. Um, but but yeah, run to the hills. I think I think it's worth mentioning at the very least, Chris. I know that it's not for you. You can agree that Number of the Beast, Hallow Be the Name, and Run to the Hills are three of the most iconic heavy metal songs ever. Absolutely. And they are you know packed into this album. Yeah. Um, run, to, run to the Run to the Hills is. I mean, you could play that really from now until the end of time at a nightclub. Yeah. yeah. Um, or, a, or a festival at the start of a gig. Anything. Yeah. I, I knew every word to Run to the Hills and Number of the Beast before even coming to this album, and I've never listened to Maiden for longer than ten minutes before in my life um, because they're just synonymous with metal, aren't they? I don't even know how I would have learned, how I would have listened to them, where I would have listened to them. But I, I just I knew the songs before I even came to the album. Basically, I was listening to this album for Invaders, Children of the Dam, The Prisoner, 22 Acacia Avenue, and Gangland. Because of, because Number of the Beast, um, Run to the Hills, and Hello Be Thy Name, I knew off the back of off the back of my hand. Obviously, Hello Be Thy Name, Machine Heads first. But even so, I, I knew it. Completely, I'm completely, completely agree, and that's. That really formed the the foundation of what Maiden have been built on over the next decade, really, where they have like maybe six to seven of the the more popular and famous um, heavy metal songs, um, really, really in the history of the genre. Uh, and also, um, really on 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 Run to the Hills, they perfected the, the Iron Maiden gallop. You know, the Linda 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 Linda. Yeah, yeah. That that that's that that's that's prevalent later on at different paces, but it it doesn't sound better than it does on here. And I also love the. Um, um, I really, really love the breakdown. The dun, 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 and then it builds up into the chorus. That's really nice. And also, essentially, all these songs are perfect played live. They are archetypal end of festival shows songs. Uh, this number of the beast and Hallow be thy name are. I mean, if, if you've ever seen Maiden play live, if you've watched Rock in Rio or any of the plethora of live stuff that they've put out, the songs here. Are so perfectly tailored to massive, massive arenas, massive festivals because of the size of the choruses, the way that you can manipulate the crowd, the way Bruce Dickinson uses these songs to really bring the live show to, to, to fruition. It's perfectly tailored. And because of that, Maiden were essentially able to take this world-class live show um, constantly, which built their longevity and fan base and all this sort of stuff that's entrenched them as regular download headliners and all that sort of thing. Like in the same way that we talked about what Ride the Lightning did for Metallica's live show, essentially being able to have Creeping Death fade to black and for whom the bell tolls at any point, at any time. 
just yeah. be able to pick those up and drop those three at any point for the next 30, 25 years. It's what that's what Number the Beast has done for Maiden. And then they obviously added songs down the line with like the Trooper and Fear of the Dark and, 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 and Ace is High and all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, like it, like it or love it, Iron Maiden are one of the the eternally popular and excuse the pun, but literally ironclad uh, bands in the genre in terms of the way that they are immovable. Uh, they will, they will, their songs now will live beyond them, and they have such a firm and unwavering fan base in in the hundreds of thousands, probably even millions at this point because of these songs, and they started a blueprint that has. Either been neither been oft imitated, but never really been outdone in terms of the, the consistency of what they've been able to produce. Um, but yeah, I I just think some of these songs are superb. I think "Hallowed Be Thy Name" is one of my favourite metal songs ever. I love I love it. I, I I think it's I love the tension of the lyrics. I love the subject matter. I love the guitar work. I love the the I love the minor key, giving it this sort of mysterious, enigmatic sort of quality. Um, I just think the whole thing is a work of art. I, I really, really, really do. I even me like if if someone said to me, "Ah, oh, like who's the top five most important metal bands ever?" Like I put Iron Maiden, I put Iron Maiden in there, and I think that's probably the best compliment I could give this album. The fact that me, who doesn't like Iron Maiden, is fully aware that they're one of the uh, one of the most important bands that metal has ever had with that said had metal have sounded like this for the next 38 years i don't think i'd be a fan of it like this i listen to this album and it just makes me really really grateful that metallica slayer and megadeth turned up and then pantera um and i, I don't i don't mean that as just it sounds that sounds like a massive insult and i, I don't mean it in that way as we've said this was always going to be a difficult listen for me but yeah, I think so. But I can't help but just feel like I'm just so fucking glad that Metallica turned up <laughs> because you know thir- another 38 years of this, and it's just there's not not a lot of urgency in the album. Is there? Do you remember what I said to you before? Like, yeah, no, I understand that. Do you remember what I said to you before that like when down when when like Sky Arts shows uh, clips of download from the year before. Like, if you're a kid flicking the channels and you stumble across, like, a bunch of 60-year-old dudes on, like, a massive headline stage or playing down loud, you're not going to think, like, oh, this is, like, really, like, interesting and, like, intense and stuff and what, what what's this? Do you know what I mean? Like, whereas if you, I don't know, if you're flicking through them, you find Stormzy headlining. I mean, they're completely different things. But the point is, like, Iron Maiden just represent everything that, that metal was, and I'm glad that it moved away from that. Uh, this was a legitimately difficult listen for me. I, I I understand its importance. I'm thankful it exists. But more than anything else, I'm thankful that it exists so that Metallica and Slayer could turn up after it after it come out. That's perfectly fine. I, I think that's I think that's a fair cop. But the thing is, is yeah, I, I agree. And the, the nature of metal is that it constantly changes every three to five years anyway. Yeah. Um, and Iron Maiden um, helped do that when they shifted away from traditional heavy metal with New Wave of British Heavy Metal and then Thrash did that. Um, and then we got New Metal and Grunge and all the, all the rest of it. And, 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 and time goes on. And, and, that, and, that's, and that's the way that it is. Um, 
it's a timestamp of the early 80s. And obviously, it depends on what perspective you've coming at it. And I, I completely get that, that, that. That's your viewpoint. Obviously, for me, um, I'm a fan of Iron Maiden because of their theatricality, because of their size. I think the choruses are great. I think the guitar work is exquisite. I think Steve Harris is one of the great bassists that nobody ever talks about. And I think that Iron Maiden's consistency and um, not necessarily influence, but continued popularity and reverence within the genre is, yes, a testament to what heavy metal used to be, but what Iron Maiden have survived as well. It's almost, it's almost um, impressive considering what they've been able to, to withstand as the genres have changed and they've maintained a constant um, around them. And yeah, this is one of the, the great, most popular and um, just really iconic um, albums of the 20th century of heavy metal. And heavy metal would not look the same without it. Metal in general would not look the same without it. And British music probably would not look the same without it to a certain degree as well. And I, for one, am incredibly grateful for it. We're going to fast forward 38 and a half years. So the debut full length Chiba record, uh, Cost of Sacrifice, is out on October 23rd via Pure Noise Records. Chamber first came on my radar because I saw them absolutely tear it up supporting counterparts in Birmingham last year. And I was with our mutual friend, Kelsall, and we both said, this band are the real fucking deal, man. I'm really, I'm going home tomorrow and I'm listening to this fucking band. Uh, at that point, they'd put out an EP called Ripping, Pulling, Tearing, and I, it really just fucking hyper-aggressive, fucking white-knuckle, aggressive, fucking super-violent, really good. Uh, you know, it, there was this like tension within that you thought, if built on, this band could be the real fucking deal, man. Like uh, on a grander scale. So here we are, Sam, and and my God, I I fucking love <laughs> I I fucking love. I knew you would adore this album. I love I love this album, dude. It's produced with such an aura of aggression. I just cannot escape. It's fucking great. I love this. Yeah, I, I I agree. This is a superb, hard-hitting, nail-wrenching, gut-tearing, bell-ridden album. Uh, and really, it actually I prefer it to the I prefer it to a lot of the other hardcore albums that you've thrown my way because there's an element of depth to it. There's an element yeah. of atmosphere, and there's a not a great deal, but there's an element of variety in this that I enjoy. Um, I think I think these are superb. I, I think the, I think they, 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 these are on these are on the right track. Um, these are on that Alpha Wolf transcendence. These these are on that Diamond Construct sort of um, vibe. I think I think there's like a like a surgical cutting uh, style to the guitar tone, and obviously, as is the case with um, top grade hardcore releases. Um, the drum sound and bass of this album, the low end of this album, is absolutely just face melting. It's it so heavy, yeah, so heavy, so violent. Um, this op- opening with opening with fracture. Oh, it's, 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 what a start! Hell. 
I was just, I didn't have, do you have room to breathe? It gives you like a minute to sort of settle in. It feels yeah. like that minute that you, it feels like that minute you get at the top of the oblivion in Alton Towers. Yeah. And you're yeah. sort of leaning over and staring into the abyss. That's what it feels like. And then it just drops you in. And then for the rest of the album, it pull, it doesn't pull any punches. Now, I would not listen to this album if I was preparing to talk to a grandparent or go to work or do anything where I was required to be polite yeah. or, or well-meaning or anything because five, five, five or six tracks into this, I could have happily committed several crimes. <laughs> um, and none, all, not, none of them respectable. Um, because this is, this is superb. It really, really is. I think the lead single, Normie, is terrific. I think the open is fantastic. I think um, the concern that I only have is, is, is only minor is that can you do this for five albums? Can you, can you be this intense for five albums? And is this why bands, and you know more than this, is this why bands of this style burn out so quickly? Because, because it's like gunpowder. You know what I mean? I can't see a circumstance where in 15 years we're like talking about the Chamber's seventh album and they're doing, they're doing this. Now, that doesn't mean to say that this isn't fantastic. I just worry about the longevity of music this particularly intense. Now, if you can say, well, actually, Sam, bands like this, this and this have been doing this for 10 to 15 years and they're really successful, great. And I'll take it all back. But I just, I listen to this and think, man, what's the... What's the shelf life of this music this intense? That's my only concern moving forward. I get that. I, I, I genuinely do. And yeah, you, you make a good point there. But on the other hand, you know, look at bands like fucking Cro-Mags and Rotting Out. Not yeah. Stylistically, not exactly this quite far from Chamber, but hardcore bands nonetheless. And... Um, have had extensive careers. Look at Misery Signals. You know, the Misery Signals came around in 2004 and they're still, they're still around. Uh, in terms of, uh, to this level of intensity, obviously there's only one way to find that out and time will be a great tell there. But for the here and now, the way this album has been produced, like the, some of the wincing guitar effects that are used all over this album are so unbelievably cutting. Um, like, if we pick up on Scars in Complex patterns, they sound like a less adventurous code orange on that on that track. But the way that the, the way they lay their hardcore down with the pinch harmonics and spacious drums, it's a really, really uncanny resemblance in terms of purely the hardcore elements. Now, Code Orange are a multifaceted beast. And to call them just hardcore would be an absolute absurd claim. But in terms of the hardcore elements of Code Orange, Scars in Complex Patterns is absolutely like a mimic, a mimicking effect there. Um, and then that's not me claiming it's a cheap knockoff album. For me, this is straight up there with the best hardcore albums released this year. I would take this over Year of the Knife's album as well as End as well. And End's got fucking Brendan Murphy and Will Putney on it two of my absolute favourite musicians. At the end of Scars in Complex, there's this really, really ominous pause, which is fucking unbelievably juxtaposed by this bullet the gate opening when Paranoia Bleeds comes in. 
I think it's one of the heaviest transitions between songs I've ever heard in my life. Reminds me of, um, <laughs> do you remember Anthem on There Is A Hell by Bring Me The Horizon? And like the, it blends into It Never Ends when that uh, girl says, I feel like I've been touched by Christ. And then the, the lead riff to It Never Ends comes <laughs> in. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the sick, it's one of the, that is probably the greatest transition between songs I've ever heard on any album. Yeah, it's haunting. It's genius. Haunted. It's genius. It, but the way Scars in Complex Patterns blends into Paranoia Bleeds kind of reminds me of that because it's, it's, it's this real, like, mellow, melancholic tone and then fucking bang, like, hook onto your jaw, this absolute yeah. <laughs> fucking explosion of just fucking musical fucking ferocity. Uh, I was reading the press notes for this album and they made a really, really interesting point. Um, they referred to Chamber as like some form of blend between Misery Signals and Slipknot, which I, yeah. think, I think that is absolutely spot on. If you take the pinch harmonics out of Visions of, Visions of Hostility, that would sonically be the kind of track Slipknot were doing around about the time of their day, yeah? if you take the pinch harmonics out. And yeah, I could, I could, I could, sonically, I could... I can understand the comparison, although I feel it's closer to Iowa era Slipknot than their first album. But what I mean um, is, you know, that kind of emotional dissonance. Oh, uh, yeah, oh, uh, absolutely. I can hear Slipknot vibes. And let's be honest, Chris, we don't often say this sounds a bit like Slipknot, do we? No, I know. We never say it sounds a bit like Slipknot because nothing ever does. But this, <laughs> exactly. the, this legitimately, honestly, if you isolate the the instrumentation of this record, remove the pinch harmonics. This, this very, very much, it, it, for me, resembles Slipknot's early, early work. Now, I'm not saying in terms of the same level of quality, because this ain't Slipknot self-titled and this ain't Iowa either, but there's legitimate resemblance. Um, Gabe Manuel, yeah. the guitarist, he's recorded on this album. Uh, I can't believe how well he's been recorded. Randy LeBluff um, is the producer of this album. And the fucking job he's done here, I cannot believe. The, the piercing sound at the start of In Cleansing Fire is out of this fucking world. And the producer has worked with Crossfaith and the Acacia Strain before. And I think working with those two bands becomes really valuable to the sound of this album. And I know that sounds like absolute Mate. Can you imagine how buzzing he must have been to be sitting to this after being in that last crossfire EP? <laughs> no, he did. He didn't do the last crossfire EP. He did. Oh, I was um, gonna say he did fucking oh the really good one with Monolith on. I forgot the name of it now. Oh, um, okay, okay, did, fantastic. But it sounds well, that last statement to mine sounds like absolute nonsense because crossfire for the Acacia Strain sound absolutely nothing alike. However, what I mean is. Those two bands are very disparate in style, yes, but the blend of the guitar effects that they, he would need to produce on Crossfaith, then mixed in with the kind of brutality that he needs to get across when he's working for the Acacia Strain. When you put those two things together, here we are, Cost of Sacrifice, this album, it fucking works so well. Um, a mention of a Jacob Lilly, who's the vocalist, spends the entirety of this album, sounds like he's about to have a mental breakdown, I'm here for it. Continue, <laughs> continue having, continue sounding like you are about to lose your mind, please, because Jacob really is fucking excellent on this. I suppose in some ways it's a hardcore record that isn't necessarily new per se, but I don't think I've ever heard many hardcore albums delivered as raw as this. And yet also, there is a technicality in the tempo changes on this album 
that is very refined as well. I know that sounds like I've just compared two different things to sound interesting, but genuinely, it's fucking very incredibly raw. But when the tempo change is coming, it's also expertly refined as well. Very, it's, it's a really unusual but fucking brilliant mix. I completely agree. I think I think this this has like a really incredible juxtaposition of the 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 mixing job is really clean, but the songs itself are fucking dirty yeah. and heavy. And I think that's that's what I'm enjoying the most about modern hardcore is that the re, the mixing jobs are just getting so much better and so much better. And you're hearing these brutal songs microscopically now. And the drums that are coming out are just, they're just absurd. I talk about this every time, but the, the, what used to be the ceiling of acceptable performance for drumming is now the floor for, for yeah. metal. And just yeah. hearing this sort of stuff is just absolutely wonderful. Um, these are going to be, these are going to be a force live. Yeah. Oh they my, are, they oh are my, a force oh, live. Oh, sport counterparts. Oh. They are. <laughs> Oh my God, you could absolutely put these with Alpha Wolf and the roof would blow off. Please, please. Can you imagine? The, how, how perfect with those three? Diamond Construct Chamber and Alpha Wolf, make it happen. Please, I'll, I'll, I'll pay all the money. Um, this is re- <laughs> For me, this is a really special hardcore album. It's up there with Alpha Wolf, in my opinion. Uh, it looks like, Sam, the end of this year is shaping up to be as strong as 2019's last few months which is going to make my album of the year list fucking mightily tough to put together again. Completely agreed. Completely agreed. I think it's going to be um, another, another exceptionally strong year. And another reminder that once again, metal is not only not dead, it is alive and punching. And fucking landing and, uh, and, and knocking outing and all of the things. Uh, <laughs> metal is 1988 Mike Tyson right now. That is where we are going to leave episode 51 of the Noise Podcast. We thank you if you have returned with us and we're sorry we're away for a while, but that's not going to be happening again. We are going to be back in a fortnight's time. Sam, could you please reveal what is the runner-up in the greatest metal album of all time? It is the final, um, it is the final submission from Black Sabbath with their second album, Paranoid. Again, this is going to be a first timer for me in terms of listening to an album in its entirety. However, um, I already know of the massive hitters from Black Sabbath, uh, Paranoid. So it's just me basically checking out the fat of the album, really, I guess, um, just to see how genius that album could possibly be. So that's going to cut that land second in our greatest man of all time. We're going to be back in two weeks for a description of that, as well as whatever albums we come across in the time being uh, that we're going to talk about. Sam's going to talk about Knuckle Pucks 2020 as well. That's worth checking in on because we refer to it as Danny Ings, uh, even though the album's fucking great. So check in for that as well. Uh, We are going to be back in two weeks' time. Remember, give us a like and subscription on YouTube if you're listening there or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. We'll be back in two weeks. We love you. Bye.